What you are about to hear are complete and utter works of fiction. But it's Halloween. Everybody deserves a good scare every once in a while. Now, the majority of these stories that you're about to hear was written by an individual named S.E. Schlosser. He's the author of the Spooky series. Well, I want everyone to have a great and a wonderful Halloween, a safe Halloween. You need to know that some of these stories, well, they're rather haunting. And at times, they may not be intended for younger children. So keep that in mind. No, there's no cursing and there's no anything like that. But nonetheless, some of these stories will resonate a ghostly feel. Whether they're true or not, that's up to you to decide. Happy Halloween from all of us at the Mountain Mysteries. And as always, listener discretion is strongly advised. We'll start off our spooky tells with a tale of Mad Henry. Oh, who's Mad Henry? Hmm. Well, Mad Henry was a hermit who lived alone in a decrepit mansion at the edge of town. Now, of course, like there always are, rumors were rife about the wild-eyed man. Some folks said that he was a magician who called upon the powers of darkness to wreak havoc upon his neighbors. Others said he was a mad doctor who could restore life to foul corpses from the local cemetery. No respectable citizen in town had anything to do with Mad Henry. Then, one year, a new family moved to town with a beautiful daughter. Her name was Rachel. And she caught Henry's eye. Well, let me rephrase that. She caught Mad Henry's eye. He showered the young girl with gifts. Goblets made of pure gold. Necklaces made out of pearl. And a pot of daisies that never dropped a single petal. Now, despite these gifts, Rachel fell in love with someone else. His name was Jeffrey. He was a handsome young fellow, just home from the college. A week after meeting, they eloped, leaving behind a stunned and visibly upset Mad Henry. When Rachel and Jeffrey returned from their elopement, they threw a great big dance and they invited everyone in town. Now, while Rachel was waltzing with her father, she heard a clap of thunder. Lightning flashed again and again. Suddenly, the double doors blew open and a breeze whirled in. And it brought with it the smell of dead, decaying things. Mad Henry loomed in the doorway pupils gleaming red with anger. He was followed by the grotesque figures of the dead who came marching two by two into the room. Their eye sockets glowed with blue fire as they surrounded the entire room. Two of the corpses captured Jeffrey and threw him down at the feet of their lord. Red eyes gleaming. Mad Henry drew a silver-bladed knife and casually cut the bridegroom's throat from ear to ear. 
Rachel screamed and ran forward, pushing through the foul, stinking corpses of the dead, and flung herself upon her dying husband. Kill us both, she cried desperately. But Mad Henry plucked the lass out of the pool of blood surrounding her dead husband and carried her out into the thundering night. Behind him, the army of the dead turned from the grisly scene and they followed their master. The sounds of thunder and lightning faded away as the alchemist and his dead companions disappeared into that dark night. Jeffrey's father and Rachel's father gathered a small mob and followed the evil hermit, intent upon saving Rachel. When they searched Mad Henry's house, they found it completely empty, save for a light, which shone from the series of mysterious globes that bobbed near the ceiling of each room. Mad Henry had vanished. Search parties scoured the countryside for days, but they didn't find anything. Jeffrey was buried in the local cemetery, and the dance hall was torn down. No one in town spoke about what happened after that, and no one dared imagine what had become of poor Rachel. A year to the day after that dance, a timid knock sounded upon the door of Rachel's parents' home. And when her father opened it, he saw a gaunt, gray figure on the stoop. Her eyes were dull with exhaustion and pain. It was Rachel. Her tongue had been cut out so she couldn't speak, but when she produced a knife from her tattered garments, the knife with the silver blade that had last been seen in the hands of Mad Henry, the gleam of satisfaction in Rachel's eyes told them that the streaks of blood that coated the knife were those of Mad Henry. That night, Rachel died in her sleep with a peaceful smile upon her ravaged face.
She was sophisticated, poised, and cultured. You know, looking back on it, that should have made them suspicious. A teacher like her should be presiding over a girls' school, maybe in London or New York, not looking for a position in a small town in Georgia. But, at the time, they were too delighted by her application to ask any questions whatsoever, so they were ecstatic. It'll be good for our daughter to learn some culture, the attorney's wife told the pastor's wife. And our boy may find some table manners at last, the pastor's wife responded with a smile. Well, school was called into session at the local church shortly before the arrival of the teacher. And soon, the children were bringing glowing reports home. Teacher, as they called her, was special. Teacher taught them manners and diction, as well as reading, writing, and arithmetic. All the children loved teacher. The parents were delighted by the progress that their children were making at school. Teacher had been a real find. A godsend, said the preacher's wife. But not everyone in town was so satisfied. Oh, no. The local ne'er-do-well called Smith had more sinister stories to tell about Teacher. That woman ain't natural, he told the blacksmith, waving a bottle of whiskey for emphasis. I seen her out in the woods after dark, dancing around a campfire and chanting in a strange language. Nonsense the blacksmith retorted, calmly hammering a headed iron bar on his anvil. They say she's got an altar in a room, and it ain't any kind of altar to the Almighty, Smith insisted, leaning forward and blowing his uh, boozy breath into the blacksmith's face. You're drunk, said the blacksmith, lifting up the hot iron, so it barred the man from coming any closer. Go home and sleep it off. Smith left the smithy but he continued to talk quite wildly about teacher in the weeks that followed. During those weeks, a change began to gradually come over the school children. Now, their typical hijinks and pranks that all kids do, well, they began to come to an end. They certainly lessened. Their laughter died away. And when they did misbehave, it was on a much more ominous scale than before. Items started to disappear from homes and farms. Expensive items like jewelry, farm tools, and money. When children talked back to their parents, there was a hard edge to their voices. And they didn't apologize for their rudeness at all, even when they were punished. And my daughter lied to me the other day, the attorney's wife said to the pastor's wife in distress. I saw her punch her younger brother and steal an apple from him. Then she denied it straight to my face. She practically called me a liar. The games the children played back in the woods frightened me, the pastor's wife confessed. They chant in a strange language and they move in such a strange manner. It's almost like a ritual dance. Could it be something they're learning at school? Asked the attorney's wife. Surely not teacher is such a sweet, sophisticated lady, said the pastor's wife. Oh, but they exchanged uneasy glances. Smith, on the other hand? Oh, he was sure. 
That teacher is turning these youngins to the devil. That's what she's doing, he proclaimed up and down the streets of town. Don't be ridiculous, the preacher told him when they passed in front of the mercantile. I ain't ridiculous. You're blind, Smith told him. That teacher ought to be burned at the stake like they burned the witches in Salem. The pastor, pale with wrath, ordered Smith out of his sight. But the ne'er-do-well's words rang in his mind, and they would not be pushed away. And the children, well, the children continued to behave oddly. It's almost like they were possessed. He would, the preacher decided reluctantly, have to look into this someday soon. That day came sooner than he thought. As a matter of fact, it was the very next Monday. His little boy came down with a cold and his mother kept him home from school. When the pastor returned from his duties for a late lunch, his wife came running up to him as soon as he entered the door. She was pale with fright. I, I, I heard him chanting something over and over in his bedroom, she gasped. So, so I crept to the door to listen and he was, he was saying the Lord's Prayer backwards. Well, the pastor gasped and clutched his Bible to his chest as the goosebumps ran all over his body. This was positively satanic. And there was nowhere the boy could have learned such a thing like this in town. Unless he learned it at school. At that moment, the attorney's wife came bursting in the door behind him. Quick, Pastor, quick, she cried. Smith is running through town with a torch, talking about burning down the school. The children are still in class. The pastor raced out of the house with the two women right on his heels. They and the other townsfolk who followed them were met by a huge cloud of smoke coming from the direction of the church, where the school children had their lessons. The building was already ablaze as frantic parents beat at the flames with wet sacks or they threw buckets of water from the pump onto the inferno with anything they could. Smith could be heard cackling unrepentantly from the far side of the building, which was full of the screams of the trapped students and their teacher. The fire blazed with a supernatural kind of force. And the pastor thought that he heard the sound of teacher laughing from within the building when it became apparent that no one could be saved. The church burnt for several hours, and when it was finally extinguished, well, there was nothing left. Distraught, mourning parents tried to find something of their children to bury, and Smith wisely disappeared from town never to be seen or heard of again. His mission against the works of Satan was completed. The teacher's burnt body was buried deep in the ground and covered with a brick tomb. The children's smaller bodies were interred beneath wooden crosses. Of all the students in the school that fall, only the pastor's small son survived because he had stayed home. He had been sick. But to this day, voices can be heard in the graveyard of the old burnt church, chanting unintelligible words 
as the school children and the teacher once chanted in the woods outside of town. Sometimes, apparitions are seen, and dark walkers who roam the graveyard at night. And they say that a brick taken from the grave of that evil teacher can set fire to objects on which it is placed. next tale is sure to give everyone something to think about. I'll simply call it Mr. Hook. The reports had been coming in through the radio all day. She hadn't paid much attention to those. Some crazy guy had escaped from the state asylum. They were calling him the Hook Man since he had lost his right arm and had it replaced with this dastardly looking hook oh he was a killer and everyone in the region was warned to keep watch and report anything suspicious oh that that didn't interest her she was more worried about what to wear on her date and after several consultation calls with friends she chose a blue outfit in the very latest style and was ready and waiting on the porch when her boyfriend came to pick her up in his car. They went to a drive-in movie with another couple, then dropped them off, and went parking in the local lover's lane. The blue outfit was a hit, and she cuddled and snuggled close to her boyfriend as they kissed to the sound of romantic music on the radio. Then... The announcer came on and repeated the warning she had heard earlier that afternoon. An insane killer with a hook in place of his right hand was loose in the area. Suddenly, the dark, moonless night didn't seem so romantic to her. You see, the lover's lane they were parked at was secluded and it was off the beaten path. It was a perfect spot for a deranged madman to lurk, she thought, pushing her eager boyfriend away. Maybe we should get out of here, she said, 
That hook man sounds dangerous. Oh, come on, babe, it's nothing, her boyfriend said, trying to get in one more kiss. She pushed him away again. No, really, we're all alone out here and I'm scared, she said. Well, as lovers' spats go, they argued for a moment. Then, the car shook a bit, as if something or someone had touched it. She gave a shriek and said, Get us out of here now! Jeez, her boyfriend said in disgust. But he turned the key and went roaring out of the lover's lane with screeching tires. They drove home in stony, cold silence. And when he pulled into her driveway, he even refused to help her out of the car. He was being so unreasonable. She fumed to herself. She opened the door in annoyance and stepped into her driveway with her chin up and her lips set. She whirled around. She slammed the door as hard as she could. And then she screamed. Her boyfriend jumped out of the car and caught her in his arms. What is it? What's wrong? He shouted. Then he saw it. A bloody hook hung from the handle of the passenger side door. Love is a funny thing. Our next tale demonstrates just how much, or maybe funny is a poor choice of words. 
Polly was the sweetest and prettiest girl in Goldsboro. No doubt. All the local guys were chasing her. And a lot of the fellows from the surrounding countryside were too. All the girls were jealous of Polly because they didn't have any sweethearts to take them to local dances. They all wanted Polly to choose her a man so things could go back to normal. But, as it turns out, Polly was a little picky. None of the local boys in town suited her, and neither did any of the fellows from the backcountry. Then, one day, a fellow named George Dean came home from university, and wouldn't you know it, Polly was smitten. Polly completely dropped all of her other boyfriends when George came courting. And it wasn't long, of course, before George proposed marriage. And Polly gleefully accepted. Well, she started to make plans for the wedding and shopping for items to fill her new home. Well, George didn't care about that. And he didn't care much about the wedding details. He left the women folk to get on with it. And he started spending time down at the local pool hall with some of his buddies. And that is where he met Helen, the owner's saucy and spicy daughter. She had bold black eyes, ruby red lips, and a bad girl feeling about her that fascinated George. And as does happen, he spent more and more time at the pool hall and less and less time with Polly, who finally, as you can imagine, noticed in spite of all of the hustle and bustle that something was different. Of course, Polly was furious. She immediately confronted George with the story and, well, he simply could not deny it. Suddenly, George had to toe the mark. His days at the pool hall had come to an end, and he spent every free hour that he wasn't at work by Polly's side. That didn't sit very well with George, but his family backed Polly up, so he went along with it. The day of the wedding dawned. Oh, it was a beautiful day. The skies were clear and blue, white puffy clouds. The weeping willows wept, cherry blossoms in bloom. It was clear and bright. The guests filled the church, and the pastor and the best man waited patiently for the arrival of the groom. But George did not show up. Eventually, they went searching for the missing bridegroom and found out that he had left town with Helen only an hour before the wedding. With dread, Polly's mother went to tell her daughter what had happened. Polly, all bouncy and bright and shining and beautiful in her long white dress and soft wedding veil, turned a ghastly pale when her mother broke the news. Then she stiffened, 
grabbing her left arm as a sudden pain ripped through it. She was dead from a massive heart attack long before she ever hit the floor. A few days later, Bolly was buried in the churchyard, still wearing her white wedding dress and veil. The whole town came to the funeral and cried at the passing of such a beautiful young girl. George and Helen, who had spent the week happily honeymooning in the Outer Banks, arrived home at the very moment that the black-clad crowd exited the churchyard. Their arrival? Well, it caused quite a stir. The minister had to pull Polly's father off George before he killed him. And both George and Helen's family disowned the couple right there on the very spot in the street in front of everyone. Well, the couple fled town in, in disgrace. As it does, time passed. And eventually the scandal was almost completely forgotten. Until the day George's father passed away. It was rumored that he was to be buried in the local churchyard only a few plots away from the very girl who had almost become his daughter. Suddenly, the story of Polly's jilting was revived, and people wondered aloud if George would dare attend his father's funeral. But George was too clever for them. He waited at an inn outside of town until it was dark, and then he went to the churchyard to pay his last respects to his father. As he unburdened himself at his father's graveside, George heard a sweet female voice calling his name. George, sweetheart. George looked up in sudden hope. Was that his mother come to forgive him? Then he saw, rising up from a grassy mound under a spreading oak tree, a figure in a long white gown and a soft veil. Her eyes and lips were yellow flames beneath the veil, and the rotted wedding dress glowed with a white and yellow light. It was Polly. George's body stiffened, Shudders of fear coursing up and down his arms and legs. He put a shaking hand to his mouth and staggered backward. The other hand outstretched, outward, of the specter floating towards him. He was trying to keep her away. The ghost bride cackled with an angry laughter <laughs> and swooped forward until its very hand closed over George's outstretched one in a terrible parody of a handshake. The grip of the spectral bride was so cold it burned the skin and so hard that the bones crunched as it squeezed. Come along into the church, George, the glowing bride whispered. Through the veil, George could see maggots crawling in and out of Polly's flaming eye sockets. No, Polly, no, George screamed in terror, but he couldn't get his hand free. The ghost dragged him step by step by halting step towards the front door of the church. His hand was a red-hot agony of pain. Though the rest of his body was shaking with cold. No! George gave a final cry of despair and wrenched 
again at his hand. And suddenly, he was free. The spectral bride gave a roar of rage as George ran pell-mell down the church lane and out into the street. You're mine, George Dean. If not in this world, then in the next, the spectral bride howled at him. By the time George reached his room, the fiery pain in his hand and arm was going through his entire body. He rang desperately for the housemaid and begged her to send for a doctor. Then he fell into bed and stared at his hand, which was black and withered, as if it had been scorched long ago by a fire. Black and red streaks were climbing up his arm so fast, he could almost see them move. George was unconscious when the doctor arrived, and the swelling was already extended into his chest and neck. There was nothing the doctor could do. The injury was too severe, and it spread too far. Within two days, George was dead. Polly had gotten her man at last. There was once a railroad conductor named Joe Baldwin, who was working for the newly rebuilt Atlantic coastline. The year was 1867, and the railroad had expanded to include a small station in Mako, North Carolina. Joe was assigned to the very last car in the train, and he executed his conductor duties to the best of his abilities aboard his assigned car. Then one night, Something went wrong, terribly wrong. The train was heading down the line towards the tiny Mako station when Joe's car started to slow down dramatically. Worried, Joe went forward to see what was happening and realized that his car had come decoupled from the rest of the train. Joe's heart leapt into his throat when he saw the retreating lights of the train disappearing into the distance. His car was stuck on the tracks, and another train was following close behind them. With a shout of dismay, Joe grabbed his signal lantern and frantically ran the length of the car. Bursting out of the back door, he ran onto the rear platform. Yes, he could see the next train speeding towards them down the track. By the look of it, the engineer had not realized the danger. Joe leaned over the rail, desperately signaling for the engineer in the following train to stop, but the train barreled forward, speed unabated. Joe realized that the engineer must not have seen the signal light, or 
perhaps had not realized its significance. He kept waving the lantern frantically from side to side, shouting in vain over the huge rumbling force of the oncoming train. The engine grew larger and larger, and Joe's heart was in his throat as he realized the train was not going to stop. With a thunderous roar and the great shriek of massive metal hitting massive metal, the engine struck the helpless car. Joe, still at his post, was smashed between the two trains. His head was severed from his body. The signal lantern flew wildly out of his hand, rolling along beside the tangled middle of the two trains and miraculously flipping upright, still alight. Joe was the only fatality in the railway accident that night. The railroad officials never located his head. Shortly after the train accident, the Mako light began to appear on the tracks near the station. People traveling on the train or crossing the tracks at Mako would report a light shining in the distance when no train was due. The light would appear as a small ball far down the tracks and then would come closer and closer to the observer until it was the size of a lantern. People reported that the light moved back and forth frantically as if it were signaling a train to stop, just as Joe Baldwin had done the night of the accident. The phenomenon became so common that the Atlantic Coast Line Railroad ordered their engineers not to stop for the light if they saw it as they were approaching Mako. People believed it was the spirit of Joe Baldwin, the conductor, desperately replaying his final moments over and over again, trying to get the following train to stop before it hit his helpless car. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. My stepmother was vile. I mean, I guess most kids think that when their dad remarries, but in this case, it was true. The only reason she married my dad to begin with was because he was rich, and she hated, I mean, hated kids. And there were three of us. Myself, my middle brother Richard, and my youngest brother Charles. We were the price that my stepmother Gerda paid for being rich. And we all were the only things that stood between her and inheriting my dad's money when he died. So she took steps against us. She sent my youngest brother Charles away to a boarding school overseas. Now, it had a good scholarly reputation, but it also had the reputation for being a hard school that was full of bullies and strict discipline. Not a place where a delicate child like Charles, who had been sickly as a baby, would ever thrive. And oh, he was so miserable there. Somehow, Gerda contrived to keep him there for all but the summer holidays, and when he came home the first year, he was pale 
and thin with dark circles under his eyes that looked like bruises. He cried. I mean, he actually cried when Dad told him he had to go back to school. But Dad didn't listen to him. Gerda thought it would be good for Charles to go there, so Charles went. I did everything I could. Encouraging letters and daily phone calls until Gerda said it was too expensive and restricted calls to five minutes one time a month. I even got Dad to book me a ticket to Europe so I could visit Charles. Gerda was enraged when she found out. Her blue eyes went so cold it made chills run up my spine and her pink mouth thinned into a bitter line that bade ill for me since I had dared to interfere. Two days before my plane left for Europe, the school called and told us that Charles had climbed up to the tallest tower and flung himself off. He was dead. Father was shocked, of course, and Gerda was quietly triumphant. For a few months, Father paid more attention to Richard and I than he had since our mother died, but Gerda was beautiful and had winning ways about her that soon drew my father's attention away. And now that one of her hated stepchildren was dead, she focused on another Poor Richard was next. Richard was a sturdy chap who was about to enter high school, and he was really into sports. He would have thrived at that particular boarding school that had killed Charles. So, Gerda sent him to an arts school instead, and he hated it. But Gerda had told father he had talent. So, away he went. Now, you would think that my dad would have learned his lesson with Charles, but Richard was a survivor, and he grimly practiced piano and violin when he would rather have been playing soccer and football. But Gerda was clever. She introduced Richard to a couple of high school boys who were everything Richard craved to be. They were rich, popular, on the football team, and they were into drugs. Gerda made sure Richard had a very large allowance and kept increasing it as Richard was drawn deeper and deeper under the influence. Until one day, Richard overdosed. Then, Gerda only had one stepchild left. Me. I was sure, sure, that Gerda knew Richard was doing drugs in his room that day. She knew he was ill and possibly dying there. If she'd found him, even ten minutes sooner, his life would have been saved. So said the doctor, and I believed him. But father wouldn't believe me. He was angry whenever I said anything against Gerda and told me to hold my tongue. Still, I knew I was next. And I was sure that father would not live long after willing his fortune over to his wife. 
I decided that if Gerda got too bad, I would run away and secretly live with my aunt in New Jersey until I turned 18. From that moment Richard's body was found in his room, I forced myself to be a model child. My homework was always done on time. I was polite to Gerda and all her friends. I went on all the family excursions with Gerda and Dad, even the dangerous ones like shark fishing. You can be sure that I took care to be seasick indoors and stayed away from the edge of the boat. Gerda was clever with her tricks. Everyone thought it was an accident the time that we were out shopping and I fell onto the subway in front of an oncoming train. Well, I managed to get out of the way and just in the nick of time, but it was way too close for comfort. I had almost decided to run away when my father brought me the sad news that my aunt in New Jersey had died suddenly in her sleep. Poisoned by person or persons unknown. I was shocked. How had Gerda known? But she had. I could tell from the smirk on her face. I went to my room that night and locked myself in to think. Well, I could run away, but the money wouldn't last long. And I'd need to finish high school or my chances of getting a good job were null and void. Besides, Gerda would still be out there somewhere. If she could hire someone to poison my only living relative, besides my dad, she could hire someone to kill me. Whether I was living at home or not made no difference. There was only one thing I could think of. Oh, and it was a terrible, terrible thing. The family secret passed down from my mother's side for many, many generations. It involved a witch named Bloody Mary, who had once tried to kill my many times great-grandmother and used the child's blood to make herself young and beautiful forever. The witch had been stopped by the child's father, well, my many times great-grandfather, in the nick of time, and the witch had cursed him as she burned at the stake. She cursed his mirror, and all the mirrors of all the men who had condemned her to death at the stake, so that anyone saying her name in front of those mirrors would invoke her vengeful spirit. The story had gotten mixed up over the years. Well, that happens. I mean, since it was passed down the first time in that village, and then it came all the way over to this country. Of course, things like that happen, but... These days, school kids everywhere scared themselves silly by chanting Bloody Mary's name in front of darkened mirrors during sleepover parties. Nothing happened to them, so no one really believed in the curse. Of course, no one knew the real story of Bloody Mary. That was a deep secret handed down by the villagers of long ago. But I was a direct descendant, and I knew how to summon the witch. You had to use a mirror owned by someone in the direct bloodline of one of the original families that lived in Bloody Mary's village. And the witch's name must be spoken by candlelight a certain number of times in their native tongue. 
Yeah, it was an evil thing to do, I know. But it was the only way to save my life. It was either Gerda or me. And if I didn't fight back, I was dead. So I took my hard-earned money and went out to a specialty store to buy hand-dipped beeswax candles. Black ones. I followed my mother's directions carefully, placing them at certain intervals around the living room so that they reflected in the huge mirror behind the couch. Then, I lit each one, speaking the spell passed down in my mother's family. And I waited. Turns out Dad was away on a business trip, and Gerda was out at a party with her latest boyfriend. Oh, she came home late and scalded me for staying up to study. Her voice was playful and light. I hated that voice. It made her sound like she was nice. But there was also a note of suspicion underlying her words, and she stared hard at the flickering black candles. Holding a seance, little Chrissy? she asked, emphasizing the word little knowing I hated it when she called me that. I just like working by candlelight, I said, mendaciously turning a page in my textbook. Gerda frowned. You know, little Chrissy, I think it's time we had a talk, she said, walking over to the mirror, behind the couch and primping her hair. Yes, I said softly. We should. You killed my brothers and my aunt. But I won't let you kill me. Gerda laughed, as if you stood a chance against me, she said, fluffing her long blonde hair up behind her shoulders. I spoke the name of Bloody Mary in the native tongue of my ancestors. Once. Twice. Three times. Inside the mirror, the image of Gerda burst into flames, and another face looked out. It was the malevolent face of a twisted old crone, ruined with age and altogether evil. I ducked behind the chair as Gerda gave a scream of sheer terror, her eyes fixed on the witch. As I watched from my hiding place, Heat burst forth from the mirror, blistering her beautiful alabaster skin. I could hear the flames roaring as the witch laughed evilly and held out her arms towards my stepmother. Gerda, crooned Bloody Mary. Come to me, Gerda. And she took my stepmother into her arms. Gerda's terrified screams was suddenly cut off. The flames disappeared as suddenly as they had come. When I finally mustered the courage to look from behind the couch, Gerda and Bloody Mary were gone. I called Dad at his hotel in the next morning to tell him that Gerda had not slept at home. Well, it was true. And believe me, he was not happy. 
He called a few of her friends from his hotel room and quickly discovered she had been carrying on with another man. With several, if the truth be known. My dad hated infidelity. He flew home at once to confront Gerda. But she was still missing, presumed to run away with one of her... <clears throat> pardon the pun, flames. Somehow, Dad managed to divorce Gerda without ever trying to find her. And since she had no family in the area except us, everyone accepted the cover story. No one ever did try to find her. Gerda was gone for good. And Father and I were safe at last. My friend Isabella called me one evening before dinner, and she was crying her eyes out. I asked, what's up? She told me that her husband Enrique and she were getting divorced. Apparently he had moved out earlier that day, and Isabella, well, she was a mess. So I called my girlfriend, who was away on a business trip in Chicago. And she agreed that I should go stay with Isabella for a few days to help her during this difficult time. Isabella and I had been friends forever. So I packed up a small suitcase and I got into the car. And it was late at night. And I knew it'd take me at least four or maybe five hours to get from where I lived to Santa Fe. Isabella was expecting me to arrive around midnight. As I traveled down that dark and wet highway and the wipers were beating to the rhythm of the rain. I kept feeling these chills. It was... It was almost like someone or something was watching me. I kept looking around, looking in the rearview mirror, and looked back into the back seat more than once, but nobody was there. So I told myself, don't be ridiculous. Wishing with everything that I could wish that I was back home in my bed instead of driving on this dark, rainy road. There was almost no traffic. And I really, really hoped that I would get to Santa Fe pretty quick. I turned off the highway just before I reached the city and started down the side roads. These roads, of course, led to Isabella's house, but as I approached a small crossroads, I saw a woman step into the street directly in front of my car. I shrieked out of my skin in fright and slammed on the brakes, praying that I would miss her. The car came to a stop, and I looked around for the woman all over the place. Then, I saw her, right beside of my window, looking in at me. And she had the face of a demon. 
twisted eyes that were glowing. Oh, God. They were glowing red and... Ugh, these short, pointed teeth. I jumped back as she leapt at my window, her clawed hand striking the glass. Yeah. I stomped on that accelerator and the car jumped forward. For a few terrible moments, she ran alongside the car, actually keeping up with it, easily. And she kept striking at me again and again. Finally, she fell behind in the rearview mirror. And I saw her growing taller and taller, until she was as large as a tree. Red light swirled around her like mist and she pointed after me her mouth moving, but I couldn't make out any words. I jerked my attention back to the road, afraid of what might happen if the car ran off the street. Sometime later, I made it to Isabella's house, and it was like in record time, and I jumped out of the car and pounded on her door like a madman and kept looking behind me to see if this demon-faced thing had followed me. Isabella finally came, running to the door, and she let me in. Shut the door, shut it! I cried frantically, brushing past her into the safety of her house. Chris, what is wrong? She asked, slamming the door shut. She grabbed my hand and led me into the living room. I sank onto the couch and just started shaking in fear and... the reaction. I guess the reaction said it all. But after a few minutes, when I finally managed to gain my composure... I managed to get out what the story was, what had happened. Isabella just looked at me and gasped. She said, Are you sure that you were at the crossroads when this when this happened, when you saw her? I shook my head, yeah. I nodded, puzzled by the question. It must have been La Malhora, Isabella said, wringing her hands. Well, I didn't know what that meant, so I googled it. La Malhora. The bad hour? I asked. This is very bad, Chris. Very bad, Isabella cried out. La Malhora only appears at a crossroads when someone is going to die. Now, usually, I'd laugh at a superstition like this, but the appearance of that... that thing shook me to the core. Isabella got me a cup of hot chocolate and brought my luggage in from the car, and she sent me to bed. She was so concerned for me that she didn't once mention the divorce or Enrique. Well, after a decent night's sleep, I felt a lot better the next day. But I simply could not get rid of the feeling of dread that grew inside of me all day long. Neither one of us mentioned this La Malhora, as we were both thinking of her when I told Isabella that I wanted to go home. Isabella insisted on going with me. At first, I flatly refused to drive after dark. I was afraid I would see that demon woman again when I passed those crossroads. So we left in the morning. And we hadn't been home for more than 20 minutes when a police car pulled into the driveway, and I knew, I knew at once what that meant. And so did Isabella. The police came to the door and set me down on the porch one of them sat down right next to me she talked to me very gently 
but there wasn't a thing she could say that would soften this news. My girlfriend had been mugged on the way back from a restaurant to her hotel after dinner last night. Her body had not been found until this morning. She'd been shot and was killed instantly. tales seem to have some kind of meaning. This is probably the shortest, but maybe one of my most favorite. A long time ago, there was a monk at the mission. But this monk loved money and power more than he ever thought about loving God. Now, he would hear the confessions of the good people who attended the mission, and then This guy would turn around and blackmail them into giving him gold and silver to keep their darkest secrets. He turned many a wayward sinner's feet towards the fires of hell instead of the gates of heaven. He encouraged their crimes in secret and private while he reviled them in public. But it was only after he had beat one poor older lady to death that this evil monk was imprisoned and sentenced to hang for his crimes. But just before he was cut down from the noose and pronounced dead, something happened. His corpse started to transform before the horrified eyes of the people. The face, twisted, and small tusks sprang from either side of his nose. His shock of white hair grew long and greasy, and two pointed canines emerged from his slit of a mouth. The goblin monk opened his eyes that glowed yellow even in the light of noonday, and sprang to feet that now ended in claws instead of toes. The people screamed and they ran, but there was no prayer of his former brothers in faith that could banish this goblin. He disappeared deep into the forest, only to return at night and prey upon the monks of the mission who had been responsible for his death. After five of the brothers had fallen to the goblin, the rest of the monks abandoned the mission and moved to another part of the country. Since that time, the mission house has slowly fallen into ruin.
Not long ago, there was this couple driving through Spokane, Washington. They were hungry and tired and needed a break. Sadly, though, they were also broke. The wife went through her purse and the glove department and under the seats of the car, trying to come up with enough spare change to get them some kind of a meal. Well, she managed to scrape together almost $8 and quarters dimes, nickels, and what few dollar bills they had when her husband called her attention to a signpost that read Steak and Eggs, $3.85. It was attached to a motel diner combination in downtown Spokane. Well, Steak and Eggs sounded a lot better than any kind of fast food to the hungry couple. So they got together what money they could and parked their car I went into this old-time diner. I don't know, it looked like it was from back in the 40s or 50s, maybe. It's the kind of place a lot of people would joke about and call a greasy spoon. But the food smelled delicious, and the place was packed with customers. And the prices on those old yellow menus, well, they were just as good as advertised. So the couple had steak and eggs on their mind, and that's what they got. The service at the diner was exemplary, and the food was also. And the bill? When it came, well, it had to have been a mistake. It was only $5. The husband blinked at the low cost and checked it again and found the waitress had only charged 85 cents for the second meal. The husband immediately called her attention to the error. He was more than happy to pay full price for such excellent service even if it meant spending their very last dime to do so. Well, the waitress was extremely sweet and thanked him for showing her that mistake, but she explained that the restaurant's policy was to charge customers only what was written on the bill, even if the server had made a mistake. Impressed, the couple paid the low bill and went back on their journey. But not before picking up a brochure for the attached motel. Well, this was a place that they were going to recommend to everybody they knew, all of their friends. And the couple did just that. They recommended the diner and motel in Spokane to everyone they came across. Many times, over and over, until one day, one of their friends, who was very familiar with downtown Spokane, questioned them closely about the experience. 
You see, he was from there and he'd never heard of a motel-diner combination in that area that they had described, nor of a restaurant by that particular name. The wife dug out the brochure and he did recognize the name of the motel, just not the diner. Puzzled, the husband called the number on the brochure and asked about the attached diner. And to his shock and amazement, the staff member who answered the phone told him that that particular restaurant attached to the motel had burned to the ground years before the couple had ever visited Spokane. Apparently, the couple had a very nice dinner of steak and eggs at a phantom restaurant populated by friendly ghosts. I'm Chris Lone, and I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to this as much as I have enjoyed producing it. Please like and subscribe to The Mountain Mysteries. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, please. It helps more than you know. May you and your family stay safe and happy this Halloween. And as always, stay mysterious.